0: All right, we're going to continue in our same passage that we're in in John 15, except looking at the substance of abiding. If you were here last week, what we talked about was was trying to bring the church back to the main thing, keeping the main thing the main thing. And and essentially, it's in John 15 where Jesus says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in me. Or in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so essentially what Christianity comes down to and what, what, what we do and why we do it, if it's not ultimately to connect to Christ, then we're going to burn out, we're going to fail, we're going to miss our goal, we're going to miss the mark. Jesus has made the Christian life really pretty simple. He says you're branches, and branches can't do anything of themselves. What they're supposed to do is just abide in the vine. So that's kind of what we talked about last week. If you weren't here, um, you can listen to that on the podcast. We're going to look at, okay, what does abiding mean? How do we abide? What's the substance of abiding? And, and this morning is going to be a very personal, very individual message. And I, 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 was, I had to be careful last week as I was thinking through this week's sermon not to add more than what's in the Word. As you guys know, we went through Acts, and I'm very fond of Acts 2.42, because the very first church on the day of Pentecost were told devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread, and to the prayers. Those four things I consider to be pillars, disciplines, in a Christian's life. But in our passage, Jesus only mentions two of them. The word and prayer. And so I, I had to be careful not to import the other two. And I started thinking about why does Jesus only say the word in prayer? And as I thought through it these last two weeks, the, the illustration from the Old Testament came to me. If you're familiar with how the temple of the Old Testament was built, there was on the very outskirts of the temple grounds what was called the Court of the Gentiles. And everybody could be in that area. Greeks, Jews... Um, whoever, King Herod, could go up to the court of the Gentiles. But then there was a little barrier wall that partitioned off the next court. In fact, a lot of people think when Paul said in Ephesians that that the Lord removed that wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, that's what he's referring to. There's no longer this distinction between Jews and Gentiles. All can come closer. And um, so it it would move from, from the court of the Gentiles to what was called Uh, the the temple complex where any Jew could go. From there, you get closer to the temple, and it was called the Court of Women. So Jewish women could then congregate and and meet in this place. From there, the next place you would go would be uh, the Western Court, where only Jewish men were allowed to go. It's where the priests would do their weekly sacrifices, their daily sacrifices, and the Jewish men who would bring their offerings could observe the rituals and the rites, and then from there, from that inner court, you would go into the holiest of holies where only one time a year the high priest would enter. And only one man would be able to allow to go in there. As I thought about this picture, it struck me that the closer they would get to where the mercy seat was, where God resided, right? The fewer people there was. It, it was shedding the crowds. The numbers became fewer and fewer and fewer the closer you got to the Lord. And I think that's essentially what's going on in this passage. There's a place and a real place for fellowship in the body. We help each other. We build each other up. But ultimately, each and every one of us comes close to the Lord and we stand individually before him. My faith doesn't rest on my wife. My kids' faith doesn't rest on me. They are to go into the Holy of Holies and meet with Christ himself. And there... It's one man allowed. Now, I'm not saying that only one person is allowed. Whoever would come to Jesus can come. But Jesus meets with them individually. And that's what this passage, Jesus is speaking to the individual. And because of that, there's two things necessary for the individual to meet with Jesus. So, we're going to look at that. If you want to read with me in John 15... We'll begin in verse 1, and then we'll address our verses that concern our issue this morning. Verse 1, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We're going to consider four small points this morning because they're they're all important. When we talk about how do you abide in the Lord, what do we need to know? We're going to first look at Jesus' statement in verse three that we are already cleaned because of the word He spoken to us. Secondly, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, we're going to consider what that means in verse 7. But then our focus, and this is my main point, I I want us to look at the interaction between the word and prayer. Because verse 7 says, if my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I'm not going to talk so much about the discipline Christians should have in being in the word and praying. I want to consider more the, the idea that What does the word and prayer have in common? How does it work? How does it build us up? What's the spiritual working of the word and prayer together? I'm just going to assume that we are reading and that we are praying. okay? And last, the last statement very quickly in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So that's where we're going. So verse 3, Jesus says, We've already identified the characters, the vine, the vine dresser, the branches, all these things. Jesus makes this statement in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So what's the substance of abiding? Where do we begin? It begins right here, with cleansing. If you remember my illustration with the the temple, and the high priest who would go into holy holies every year, once a year, he would have to consecrate himself first. He'd have to go in with blood. He'd wash himself clean before he could enter into the presence of God. And if any unclean thing happened to him in his thoughts, in his heart, he'd drop down dead and they'd have to pull him out with a rope. So this idea of cleansing is a very Christian idea. The Bible compares, in fact, our sin to filth. That's so why I had Mallory read our passage in Zechariah. Joshua is depicted as standing before the Lord with the accuser there because he's full of filthy garments. It's a metaphor for sin. And when we are full of sin, Satan can rightly accuse us. But what is the promise out of Zechariah? I open up a fountain to cleanse them, and I remove those filthy garments and give them new ones. It's a depiction. It's a metaphor very often used of trading our sin for righteousness. Isaiah declared it this way. All of our righteousness is filthy rags to Him. There's nothing that we can offer that's righteous or clean. So the calling... First, to abide in Christ, we got to understand, is a holy calling. And this is, I stress this because in our world today, as I've been watching our cultures, I've been um, trying to observe where people are at, many of you probably have heard of some of the big-name Christians who have abandoned the faith recently. Joshua Harris, being one of them, says he's no longer a Christian. One of the Hillsong worship leaders says he's no longer a Christian. And when you read their reasons why, one of the statements, for instance, said this, that how can God be a loving God and yet send people to hell because they don't believe? And I thought to myself, well, that's the problem. It's not simply they don't believe, it's that they have sin. That's why there's hell. God must send people to hell if He's loving I gave the illustration to a class I'm teaching at the Christian school this way. When my, fa- my brother's father-in-law was murdered, as some of you know in our history, the morning we we're going to leave to England, the man was a meth addict, and, and as we went to the court in, in trials, he came in with the tattoo on his eye, you know, the badge of honor for killing a man. And I told the class this. I said, would it be loving if the judge in that case looked at this man and said, you know what, I'm a loving judge, and I know you've murdered this man so I'm going to let you go, because I'm loving, I'm merciful. We see through that notion of love pretty quick when we hear that, right? There's a violation of justice that happened, though. And what about the victims? You see, sin is a part of every one of our lives, and there's a violation that occurs when we sin. If God is loving, He must deal with that. If He doesn't, I don't want to worship Him, because we'd be worshiping a tyrant. But people who abandon the faith... They don't talk about sin the church today it's, it's much more easy to talk about god being love than the reality of sin that separates us from that love but it's true that's where the gospel begins and that's why jesus said look fellowship with me begins when you're cleansed from sin here's how peter put it in first peter as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the holy calling we're called to. In 1 Corinthians 6, 14 through chapter 7, verse 1, we're not going to read it all. But Paul makes a statement, look, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does Christ have with Belial? Christ in his character and his nature cannot fellowship with sin, with darkness. So what does he do? Because we have sin, we have darkness. What's to He do? He cleanses us. That's where it begins. That's why Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, we're going to deal much more with this point next week. So I don't want to stay here too long. But it's absolutely necessary. Fellowship with Christ, abiding in Christ, means we've dealt with our sin. We've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. But let's move on. Okay? He goes on in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So we've been cleansed, now what's next? We abide in the Lord. But he he makes a statement in verse 7 that really clarifies a point we, we touched on last week. He says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. This is so important this distinction. We talked last week about the the branches that are connected to the vine and yet they're dead. In fact, this week is John and Riley Green, who are part of our church. You guys know we're standing there saying goodbye to them. They were packing up the house. They lived right next door in case you didn't know that. And so we're standing out front and, and I'm just standing there and the tree in front of their yard has this massive branch that's just dead. And I was just like, man, I just want to go cut that thing off and chunk it. And I started thinking about my sermon. There's branches connected to a tree, but they're dead. They're not bearing any fruit. Why? Because the life of the tree, the life of the vine, is not abiding in the branch. There are so many people in religious circles that are attached to church, attached to Christian things, and yet the life of Christ is not truly abiding in them. And it's a huge distinction Jesus makes here. It's where I want to stop and talk about it. The Word of God must abide in us. It's a reciprocal relationship. We seek to abide in Him, but we need to open up our hearts and make room for the Word of God to abide in us. And that's very difficult for some people. How many of you have ever opened your Bible, or any book for that matter, and read it, close it, and what what did I just read? I want you to listen to uh, to some of the Scriptures here that highlight this desire, this hunger for the Word of God. Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 15, verse 16 said this, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me as a joy and a delight to my heart, because I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. The Word of God for Jeremiah the prophet became a joy and the delight of his heart. Now, I love that because Jeremiah ministered in a very difficult context. He preached for 50 years and had one convert. He was killed, almost killed numerous times by his very people, and yet he abided in the Word of God, and the Word abided in him, and he had joy despite the circumstance. Psalm 119.11 says this, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You make room in your heart to fill your heart with the Word of God. You make space. You let the Word of God abide in you. And then in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. Napoleon Bonaparte, the French general in the early 1800s who was trying to conquer the world. There's a love letter he, he wrote to his wife, who Napoleon was a very poetic and gifted speaker as well as general. Loved writing letters to his wife, but she didn't write so many, so many back. And he wrote to her one note and said, my soul craves your words. If I don't have your words out on the battlefield, my soul ceases to exist. It's the idea. The Word of God is not just an academic pursuit for us. It's something we long for. I ate them. They were my joy. They were the desire of my heart. Psalm 119, I love your Word. See if all we've done is just reading God's word and yet there's not that passion for it. The reason is probably because it's not finding space in our heart to lodge, to make room. I don't know if any of you were like this in college, but I got to confess that I was. Usually at the very earliest a week before I had a major test, sometimes the night before I had a major test, we would cram. Anybody else do that? And we would cram our head full of so much stuff, and we knew it. We'd go into that, that room the next day or whatever, and sit down and just vomit it all on the paper, you know, and we'd get our C plus or whatever. And, uh, but we passed. And we'd walk out that room, and it wasn't two days later. I could not remember a single thing that I'd crammed. I was abiding in the textbook but the textbook was not abiding in me. You see the difference? We can approach the Word of God and we can abide in it, we can abide in it, but is it reciprocated back? Is it abiding in us? That's what's so important here. You hide its Word in your heart. You store it up. You make space. Have you ever noticed how often in the Scriptures the Lord tells us to listen to Him? To hear Literally, in the concordance, when I opened this up, it was pages of here, here, here. I just wrote some down. I want to read them to you. One of the most important passages for the Jews is Deuteronomy 6, 3-4, where the greatest commandment is given. And here's how it starts off. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Listen to this. Joshua, chapter 3, verse 9. Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Psalm 95, 7. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. That's quoted in Hebrews 3 as well. In the New Testament, when you look at Revelation, for instance, the seven churches that, that Jesus spoke to, every single church, the Lord ends His commentary to that church with a statement, He who has ears to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God the Father, during Jesus' ministry, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, spoke up, said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. It's so important that when we come to the Word of God, we're not just abiding in it, but it's abiding in us. We're listening. We're hearing what He says. That is the next key... As we talk about the substance of abiding, fill your heart and your mind with the Word of God. Let it abide in you richly, as Paul said. Let it dwell in your hearts richly to overflowing. There's a sad account in the New Testament that really highlights why the Jews missed Jesus as He ministered everywhere. In John chapter 5, Jesus calls them out. The Jews were not believing in Him. Actually, if you want to just turn there, let's turn to John chapter 5 real quick. So you can see this. Beginning in verse 37, or 36 rather, John 5, 36. But, I, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, referring to John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself born witness about me. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you. There's our statement. But He says in verse 39, you search the Scriptures. But what did Jesus just tell him? My words aren't abiding in you, but we search the Scriptures. Why? Why did they miss it? You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it's they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So many religious people make the same mistake the Jews do. They search the Scriptures, they search the Scriptures, they search the Scriptures, and yet the Word finds no place in their heart. It's not abiding in them, and so they miss it. They don't see it. They never come to faith in Christ. They get so close, and yet nothing ever happens. This is why. The Word must be reciprocated, abide in us. So, this is an important point I, I want us to just think about. I said last week, I gave the illustration of George Mueller. And, and what he did, he would, as I said last week, he would, he would spend time in the morning, sometimes hours praying and reading, and yet no power, no fruit in his life. So, the Lord began to show him, because this, this principle we're talking about is not happening. So, what he would do is read a sentence, a verse, a paragraph, maybe and just sit and dwell on it, meditate on the truth, until the Holy Spirit communicated a truth out of that to his heart. And he knew that the Lord was speaking to him. He was listening, and the Word of God was finding place to abide. And he'd leave filled with power. You read his life, man, what a life to emulate. Full of faith, full of answer after answer after answered prayer. Such a wonderful man. That brings us to our third point back in John 15. When this is happening to you, church, when you're abiding in Christ and His Word is richly abiding in you, Jesus makes an astounding statement to some of us. Verse 7, He says, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be granted to you. I think this is a hard concept for some of us, because the reality for many of us is this, that we, we do pray, and yet many of our prayers are never answered. Anybody ever had that? Yeah. There could be many reasons for it. I think some of the reasons is because we're praying, but we're not giving space for the Lord to speak to us as well. And when that's not happening, He won't answer our prayer. How can I say that? What authority do I have to say that? Well, if we won't first listen to the Lord, don't expect that He'll listen to you. I've got some scriptures, Isaiah chapter 1. The whole passage is verse 12 through 15. You can write it down, look, at the whole thing. I'm just going to read the end of it. He says this, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And then he says this, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Micah chapter 3, verse 4, They will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Proverbs chapter 1, 28-31 says this, They will call upon Me, but I will not answer. They will seek Me diligently, but will not find Me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of My counsel and despised all My reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way. In the New Testament, James chapter 4, He talks about, Look, you ask for things, but you don't receive them, why? Because you're asking so you can spend it on your pleasure. Carnal prayer. So much of prayer is not first sanctified because the word is not abiding in us. So our prayers are self-centered, they're selfish, they're not with the mind of God. You remember Jesus rebuking Peter. When Peter rebuked Jesus, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, I'm gonna be killed. And Peter says, far be it from you to be killed. What does Jesus say to him? You're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. You're thinking in a human way, not in a godly way, Peter. What happens then when we abide in the Word is that the Word begins to transform how we think. It begins to transform what we pray for and why we pray for it. When that begins to happen, when transformation inwardly happens to us, Jesus says, you can ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Why can He make such a grand promise? Because when we are washed, when we are sanctified, when we allow the Word of God to transform us and change us, nothing of what we will ask will be out of His character. Nothing of what we ask will be out of His will. We become one. That's what abiding is. His life is our life. His will is our will. His thoughts are our thoughts. What He loves, I love. The things that God hates, I begin to hate. But if we fail to listen to the Lord, if we fail to let the Word of God abide in us, don't expect prayer to be answered. Don't expect this verse to be true for you. But when you do abide, church, your prayer life will be transformed. You can have the utmost confidence to ask whatever it is you want. This was a good uh, lesson for me when I met Jill. Jill. I had become very, very leery of myself in dating because here I thought I'd discern the will of God with this girl and sure enough, nope, it wasn't. And I'd hurt her. I'd hurt myself emotionally. Time after time after time, as we just sang, I'd failed in relationships. And I'd given up on them. And I told the Lord, I'm never going to get married because I, I don't get it right. I can't. I don't understand it. All I do is hurt people. And I give it over to him. And uh, then Jill walked in the back of the church in her long, white, flowing dress, and I thought, oh, goodness, don't look. (laughs) And her mom and dad were kind enough to introduce me that afternoon to her, make it even harder. And, of course, I began to like her immediately, like, wow, she's awesome. And my heart began to swell with love and affection and desire. and But I just kept resisting and resisting and resisting because I didn't know if I could truly discern the will of God in this. I didn't know if I was just pursuing my own fleshly desires again. And in the Psalms uh, 37, I think it talks about, you know, give yourself to the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart and trust yourself to Him is the word. And so... I started to be, begin to examine my life and, and up to that point, how I had truly entrusted myself to God finally in the area of relationships. I'd given it over to Him. i had entrusted that to Him. Let Him carry and shoulder that for me. What the Lord began to show me was, look, Seth, you've entrusted this to me for the first time. You can, you can trust the desires you are now experiencing. Why? Because your heart has been conformed to mine. Those are not not bad desires. It's not bad for a husband to long for his wife. Those are godly. Those were placed there by the Lord. But I had to first entrust it to him. When that truth sunk in, I had been up till two in the morning talking to my pastor about it in his front yard. I went home and was up till four o'clock, something like that, on my bed, just smiling. (laughs) Because the joy of the Lord confirming His will to me, had sunk in. I'd entrusted this to the Lord. His word abided in me. These desires I'm now experiencing, I don't have to fear. They're in line with the Lord's will, not outside of His will. And here we are about to have our fifth kid. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. See, what happens to the believer, he's cleansed from sin, The Word of God penetrates his heart, transforms his heart, his mind, so that the believer starts thinking like the Lord, abiding in the Lord, desiring what the Lord desires, walking as Christ walked, doing what Christ did. We become one, so that we can ask what we wish. And just as the Father answered Jesus... He will answer us. I want to give you some scriptures that Jesus pointed out this unity He had with the Father. John 5.30 I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I don't seek my own will but the will of Him who sent me. John 8.26 He who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I've heard from Him. Jesus doing only what the Father told Him to do. Then in verse 28 and 29 of that same chapter I do nothing on my own authority. I speak just as the Father's taught me. He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do things that are pleasing to Him. That was true for Jesus and the Father. Is it true for us? Will it become true for us as we abide in Him and He in us? Absolutely. How do I know that? I want you to turn to John 17. If you're in 15, turn over to chapter 17 and hear Jesus' own prayer for you. Just as He and the Father were one, Jesus did exactly what the Father told Him to do, said exactly what the Father told Him to say. This will become true for you as He abides in you. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in Me and I in you, that they also may be in us. You see that? so that the world may believe you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. You see what abiding does? It brings you perfectly into union with Christ so that Jesus can say, ask whatever you wish. When we are one with him, he holds back nothing. What's the result? It's our last point. By this, my Father's glorified. You'll bear much fruit. You'll bear much fruit. It's not about being busy. It's not about doing. It's not about working, 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 working. It's about abiding in the Lord and letting Him abide in you, making space. And that's it. That's fruit bearing. I love this point. To put it concretely, let me say it this way. I, as a Christian, must understand this point. When I'm called to serve, when I'm called to labor, when I'm called to preach a sermon, when I'm called to go visit someone in the hospital, at home, in prison, wherever it might be, what am I to think first and foremost? What is my greatest need? To let Christ abide in me in that moment. To draw near to Him so that He will draw near to me. That's my greatest need. It's your greatest need. Parenting, work, relationships, marriages, all will be fruitful when this principle, you grasp it. When you let the word of God abide in you richly, everything will begin to flourish in your life. When you serve at church, when you teach the little children, when you teach our youth, When you serve on the worship team, whatever it might be, the key to fruitfulness is you need to draw near to the Lord. The Lord wants us to take up our position in this relationship as a branch. You are to be a branch. That's it. What can the branch do of itself? Nothing. It simply abides in the vine. Jesus is telling you, I don't want anything from you except you abide in me. What you have to offer, I don't want. I've got it covered. Hour by hour, moment by moment, in every work, in every ministry, every obstacle, every trial, anything you face throughout the day, be a branch, abide in the Lord, and let his word abide in you. When I am nothing, that's when God can become everything. If I still hold on to something, Jesus hasn't yet become all in all. The keys become nothing. I want to read this quote from F.B. Meyer. I find it interesting as I read church history, there's always, there's, there's many notable men and women in church history. But there's one thing that every man and woman who have been profoundly used by the Lord has in common. And it's this truth. This truth in a nutshell is the word consecration. They all get this point. They are nothing, and I must rely solely on the Lord. You look at the Wesley brothers. You look at George Whitfield. You look at F.B. Meyer, Francis Ridley Havergal, A.J. Gordon, all of them preach these truths. We are branches. We can do nothing on our own. I want to read to you F.B. Meyer's statement. He says this, The Holy Spirit never reveals Himself. His work is to reveal the Lord. We are not conscious of the Spirit, but of Him who is the Alpha and the Omega of our life. That's Christ. Christ's loveliness fills the soul when the Spirit is in full possession of it. Our Lord is with us all the days, but often our eyes don't see. If for a moment we discern him, then he vanishes from our sight. There's an experience which we do not only believe that he's near, but we perceive his nearness. We perceive his presence. So that he becomes a living, bright reality, sitting with us in our home, walking beside us through crowded streets, sailing with us across stormy seas, standing beside the graves that hold our dead, sharing our crosses and our burdens. Then it is that the believer leans hard on his ever-present Lord, drawing on his fullness, putting on his unsearchable riches, claiming from him grace to turn every temptation into the means of increasing likeness to Christ. Now, I want you to listen to this last line. If the branch abide constantly in the vine, it cannot help bearing fruit. Nay, the difficulty would be to keep fruit back. That's what we're after, church. Next week, we're going to do the other side of this coin. What happens when fellowship is broken with the Lord because of sin? What do we do? We're going to consider the role of confession and repentance for a Christian in restoring this relationship that we've just looked at. When you see the grace and mercy of Christ, confession and repentance is not something to be feared. It's beautiful. See, under the law, you don't have opportunity to repent. It's, hey, if you destroyed their eye, guess what? You're losing one as well. If you take a life, your life is forfeit. There's no mercy in law. But in this covenant of grace with Christ, we can repent. We have the opportunity to change. The judgment's already been given by and on Christ. I want to invite the worship team back up as we pray. We're going to sing this last song. It's the song we, new song we just sang. All my ways are known to you. But would you pray with me, Father God? As we go throughout our week this week, I want to ask that you just be merciful and gracious to us, Lord. That that You communicate in a fresh way Your profound love for us. Father, not only was it expressed in Your sacrifice, but Father, it's expressed in the covenant of drawing near to us, attaching Yourself to us, and attaching us to Yourself. Father, Your goodness is It's so good. It's so undeserved, and yet it's ours. Father, you know our ways before we even do them. You know when we are obedient, and you know when we are disobedient. Father, when we are obedient and we bear fruit, it's because we're simply abiding in you. When we are disobedient, it's because we're not abiding in you. And yet, Father, in your grace, you call us back and you restore us, you cleanse us. You even turn tragedies into triumphs. You cause all things to work together for our good. What greatness you behold. Father, as we sing this song again, may we sing it with joy in our hearts, understanding the profound truth that it is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.